Hello and welcome again to our final summer edition of Lost in Science. Before we return to your regularly scheduled programming, over the summer we have been hearing from Laboratory, which consists of scientists who tell us stories about their favourite science discoveries and their science heroes. Later in the show, we will hear from Hannah Etchells, who previously worked in art and fashion before seeking a career in ecology, where she looks at fire ecology and its effects on native animal species. She's going to be talking about her science hero, who's the founding head of the CSIRO's Division of Forest Research, Dr. Max Day. But first of all, we're going to hear from Sarah Charneau, who's a Melbourne-based scientist looking at parasitic epidemiology and she is going to be talking about an early pioneer of malaria research, Ronald Ross. you're in ancient Rome. You're a Roman. You're farming on some beautiful field just outside of Rome. You've got your crops. You've got your peasants working for you or you're a peasant. And life's good. Yeah, you've got wine, you've got sun, but every year a pestilence sweeps through. Every year fevers come. Some years are worse than others. And this particular year, All your kids are coming down with fevers. The fever comes, it goes for a couple of days. It comes back, it goes again. And you don't know what causes it. You don't know where it comes from. But all your children, they are dying. They pass out and then they don't wake up again. Now, people say it comes from the air and they call it malaria, bad air, malaria. It's from the Greeks who called it miasma, this stain or pestilence that rose from the ground and spread on the winds. I mean, how are you going to stop that? In, in China at the same time, two and a half thousand years ago, they're boiling herbs to stop these fevers. Now, the Romans did all sorts of things to try and avoid malaria, but they moved Halloween. It used to be in May, now it's in November, to stop everyone coming to Rome just when the pestilence was worst. But still, the people get sick, the young die, the old get frail. They can't work, can't farm, can't fight, and the empire falls. So 2,000 years later, now we're in Australia, 1890s. People from South Australia, they go up to Darwin to build the grand 
engineering feat of the Overland Telegraph. But there's fevers here. On the air, on the wind, how do you stop getting the fevers? Again, one in every 10 people in the hospital is out with this fevers. But we still don't know what causes it. And how can you stop something that comes on the air? Are you just going to go out and not breathe? I'm just going to hold my breath when I'm outside. <gasps> if we don't know where something comes from, how can we ever combat it? So all over the world, people are dying from this fever, but no one knows what causes it. And whether it's all the same thing, even now, these fevers, malaria, they're still they're causing a death every minute. This, this isn't something that's gone away. We're still tied to those ancient Romans 2,000 years ago. So now, cue the hero of our story, Ronald Ross. He is um, a British citizen. He's born in India, but he's sent back to England when he's eight years old for health reasons. And then he wants to be a writer, and he writes whimsical plays. I imagine him skipping down the rivers, smelling roses, writing his poems. But his dad has other ideas for him and enrolls him in medical school. And so he returns to India as an army surgeon, not the poet he fancied. And when he gets there, he is murdered by mosquitoes. Every night they come in through his window from where he sleeps and just bite the hell out of him. And he's kind of watching these damn mosquitoes and he realises that they're breeding in a water butt outside his window. So he kicks the butt over, stops the mosquitoes, life's good. Suggests this for the whole of the rest of the mess. No one's interested, just don't be an idiot, mosquitoes are just there. But that's his first insight into mosquitoes. And then he goes back on family leave, back to the UK, and he happens to meet a man called Patrick Manson, who convinced him of the joys of research, which is great, and also convinced him that mosquitoes might be the cure, the, the reason for malaria. But he had no way of testing it, Patrick, because he's in England, and there's not much malaria. There was some then. Um, so 30 years before this conversation takes place, Louis Pasteur had shown that germ theory was probably right over miasma theory, that, that diseases are caused by small organisms. Um, ten years before, Laverin had found in the blood of malaria patients, inside the red blood cells, these pigmented bodies, he called it. So a parasite. And just a year or two before, they'd found out that yellow fever is spread by mosquitoes. So the time is perfect to test this theory. And so Ronald Ross goes back to back to um, India, and he's so excited. He's just, he can't wait. He gets off the boat, doesn't wait for his luggage, runs straight to the hospital, starts stabbing everyone with malaria he can, getting their blood, drawing blood smears, looking under a microscope he's brought with him in his luggage. And he, he sees some of these bodies, but that doesn't show it's from malaria. So anyway, he has to go off to wherever he's posted in the army, and he spends years trying to figure out if mosquitoes are the cause. First, first idea. It's the water. So he gets water with dead mosquitoes in it, feeds it some, to some people. Not the best. Some of them do get sick. No malaria in them. Something else in that water. But he notices that the mosquito, every time it, she bites him, so it's always females who bite, she injects a little bit of fluid and he thinks, ah, maybe the, maybe the malaria parasite's in that fluid. So then he gets some people with malaria 
gets some mosquitoes, starts feeding all these people, starts feeding the mosquitoes on all these people. And uh, he's in this stinking hot lab in Bangalore. He can't use the punker or a fan because it, it blows up his mosquitoes from where he's trying to dissect out the inside of a tiny mosquito and look at what's inside. And he talks about, you know, the sweat is pouring off him. It rusts the eyepieces of his microscope. The eye flies prevent him from seeing. And uh, he has no luck for years. He's dissecting mosquitoes. There's a few people's malaria, not that many where he is. Going through all these mosquitoes, nothing. His supervisors don't, don't believe in him. They post him wherever he wants. He's in the army. They post him where there's no malaria. He's got no hope. But then he gets a lucky break where he gets... Three weeks in a place with a load of malaria. And in fact, he gets malaria pretty quickly as well. But in this place, he notices the mosquitoes he's been using look very different to the ones here. In this new place, they're kind of weird and spindly, and they've got dappled wings and brown bodies. And so he takes some of the water with the larvae in back to where he's working, and he manages to hatch eight. He's got eight of these mosquitoes. And then he finds a guy with malaria, Hussein Khan. And he, he pays the guy one anna per mosquito bite. And so he gets all the mosquitoes to bite him, eight mosquitoes. And he dissects these mosquitoes. First one, nothing. Second one, nothing. Third, fourth, fifth. There's nothing in there. I think it's the sixth one. He started to see something he thought in the gut that looked a bit funny in the mosquito. But that's not going to prove anything to anyone. It's the eighth mosquito. He sees a round body, a perfectly round thing on the outside of the mosquito midgut. And this is clearly not a mosquito cell. And he is ecstatic. He knows what he's found the moment he finds it. And he writes a poem, which I'm going to read to you now. He also is not a man built for modesty, so he declares this World Mosquito Day. This day, relenting God hath placed within my hand a wondrous thing, and God be praised, at his command, seeking his secret deeds with tears and toiling breath. I find thy cunning seeds, O million murdering death. I know this little thing a myriad men will save. O death, where is thy sting? Thy victory, O grave. So, yeah, he's just found one oocyst inside one mosquito. It's not, it's not a done deal yet. And again, he has moved around with the army. But he manages to show the malaria life cycle with a malaria parasite that actually infects sparrows. So the sparrow becomes an unwitting hero. And he, Ross was awarded the second Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1902, the second prize that was ever awarded, for his work on malaria, by which he has shown how it enters the organism and thereby has laid the foundation for successful research on this disease and methods of combating it. But we shouldn't forget, although Ronald Ross would like us to, Giovanni Grassi, an Italian who in the same year showed the malaria life cycle with three human malarias. But um, Ross had friends in high places and uh, that didn't go well for Grassi. So Ronald Ross, he instantly knew what he'd found. He, he knew that mosquitoes were now the key to preventing malaria. You kick over the water butt, you're going to stop malaria. So nowadays, 
In the last 15 years, bed nets have saved over 450 million people, which I think is around 20 times the population of Australia. Also with spraying and insecticides. And the most recent um, winner of the Nobel Prize in malaria was only two years ago, and that was Tu Yuyu from China, who someone else has talked at Laboratory about before. And she got it for finding that ancient Chinese herb they'd been using 2,000 years ago. She found the active ingredient and how to make that into a drug. And um, that saved another 120 million people. So we're saving millions with this, but it's still not quite there. So from Ronald Ross, what are the keys to Nobel success other than having friends in high places? Ask an important question. Ross and Tu Yuyu both asked, how do we stop malaria? It kills loads of people. How do we stop it? No one thought it possible at the time. You've got to be open to new ideas and work together with other people. Ronald Ross worked with Manson. He had a mentor in Manson for many, many years and also all other malariologists around the world. And you stand on the shoulders of those before. I think this is really inspiring. Some Nobel Prize winners, at least the ones that I've researched in malaria, they're, they're building their work on someone who's gone before. It's not like they're massive geniuses. They're, they're persistent, number four, and they're lucky, number five. But most important, they just, they just kept going. They got lucky. They kept going. They got lucky. So I think the next steps from malaria is a vaccine. We still don't have a vaccine. And what about the basic biology? It hides in our livers. No one knows where. What if it hides other places? There's papers from the 1890s, 1900s that we still need to follow up. There's still, in this era of internet, I feel like we all know, we all think we already know everything. There's no more exploring to be done. But we don't know what we don't know, to coin a phrase. And I think there's still plenty of exploring to be done that's really exciting. So, a final question to all of you. What have you been wondering about? What interesting questions has anyone posed to you? And what are you going to do about it? Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science.
In general, we look for new law by the following process. First, we guess it. <laughs> then we com... So don't laugh, that's what's really true. Then we compute the consequences of the guess to see what, if this is right, if this law that we guessed is right, we see what it would imply. And then we compare those computation results to nature. Or we say compare to experiment or experience, compare it directly with observation to see if it, if it works. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. In that simple statement is the key to science. It doesn't make a difference how beautiful your guess is, it doesn't make a difference how smart you are who made the guess, or what his name is. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. That's all there is to it. For the musical break there, we heard from Sarah Shano, who was talking about pioneer of malaria research, uh, Ronald Ross. Coming up next, we've got Hannah Etchells, who did have a prior career in the arts before seeking a career in ecology. Uh, she is talking about her science hero, who was the founding head of CSIRO's Forest Research Division, uh, Dr. Max Day. She started off her talk with a quote which I will read out for her now. Probably the most important contribution that any Australian can make to the environment in the 1980s is being more aware of it, of how its quality relates directly to the quality of human life and pursuing that awareness to ask questions of scientists and decision makers. That's a quote from Dr Max Day, who is the hero that I'm going to talk about today. Max was born in 1915, making him, when he passed away, Australia's oldest scientist. So he studied science in Sydney, at Sydney University, um, and then he travelled to the US, to Harvard, to undertake his PhD. So back in the day, this was sort of in the 30s, um, that meant that coming from Sydney, he had to travel all the way over to Perth via train, and then get on a boat and travel over months to the US. While he was travelling, he sort of came across the Nullarbor and at that point in time there was a train line that ran along sort of the south coast. So I don't know if you guys have been down to the south coast before, um, but there was a train line that ran from Denmark to Nonalup. So Nonalup is a very small town on the south coast. I mean, it's actually the area where my field sites are. So I'm a fire ecologist, um, as was mentioned earlier, and I'm studying how catastrophic wildfires affect um, some of the tallest trees in the entire world, and those trees uh, carry, and they only grow here in the southwest. 
So Max Day came across on this train and he arrived in this town called Nonalup. And in his sort of journal entries and things that he was writing about, he actually wrote a letter back to his fiancée at the time being like, I am in one of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, it's this sort of serene, pristine environment and I think that when we get married we should, we should have our honeymoon here. Um, and as soon as I sort of, I started, I started reading about Max Day a while ago and as soon as I read that I just felt this great affinity with him because I actually got married in Nornalup myself because it is the place that I like most in the entire world and it is a place of extreme beauty and um, extreme pristine environment and I think that through sort of growing up down there and holidaying down there a lot and then eventually getting married there, all of these things um, for me um, have been the reason why I ended up studying ecology. So when I read that, that Max had had a sort of a similar experience there, it really connected with me and made me really interested in him as a person. Um, and then I went on to find out all the amazing things that he's contributed to um, Australian ecology. So after he did his PhD at Harvard, he came back to um, Eastern Australia and he was the first chief of forest research, um, which is obviously also very relevant to my interests. He was also one of the first fellows of the Australian Academy of Science, um, and he was the first ecologist or environmental scientist to be on the Australian Academy of Science, and he helped really push that agenda. So before that, um, the Academy was mostly, you know, sort of chemists, physicists, um, medical scientists, but he really pushed this um, environmental focus, which obviously has laid the groundwork for um, all of the ecologists in Australia today. So during the 50s, while he was um, working as the Chief of Forest Research and was also on this academy, one of the biggest conservation problems all across Australia was rabbits. So rabbits have been introduced from Europe um, along with foxes and cats. But so foxes and cats obviously predating our native wildlife, but rabbits are making things difficult, were making things difficult in the 50s in other ways. So they were reproducing out of control. They'd spread across the whole continent and they were um, taking resources away, destroying the environment that native animals were using. So one of the most famous native animals that they were um, causing the decline of is the bilby, which you guys might be familiar with. So something had to be done about these rabbits and, and Max really wanted this to happen, but his background had been in entomology and was in entomology. So he re researched insects and didn't really, you know, it, you know, compared to most of the um, mammologists and people studying mammals at the time, didn't know a lot about rabbits. But he was approached by a virologist, so someone who studies viruses, called Dr. Frank Fenner. And Frank Fenner was interested in this virus called myxomatosis. And those of you who uh, from Western Australia, well, from Australia, will know that myxomatosis um, is the virus that is transmitted um, to rabbits that, you know, basically kills them, but is, is something that could be used potentially. They saw this um, potential in the 50s. They saw it as a, a biotic control. But Frank Fenner didn't know how this virus was spread. He knew it might be a mosquito, but he didn't really know which mosquito or how it was actually transmitted. So he enlisted the help of Max Day. So even though Max Day was an entomologist, he contributed greatly to conservation across Australia by finding out which species of mosquito it was that was transmitting the virus and enabling it to be isolated so that then it could be used to infect rabbits across Australia and control our rabbit problem. Of course, these days, um, the rabbits have evolved resistance to this virus, so we have other ways of dealing with them. But 
in the 50s and 60s, it was the primary way that we managed to decrease the number of rabbits across Australia and help conserve our native ecosystems. I think one of the things that I like most about Max when I, you know, in my reading of him is that he was a really fantastic science communicator. He always was very passionate about making sure that science, scientists of the future, so he said this in 1980, he said he'd like to think that scientists of the future could also think broadly and put their specialisation into broader context and communicate it to non-scientists. And that's something that is really important to me as well. And I think, I suppose, as Australia's oldest scientist, he sort of gets the credit. He published a paper when he was 96. Um, and that was because um, in his early 90s, he has, had been retired for a number of years, but he approached researchers um, who he had previously worked with for many years at CSIRO because he wanted to undertake a project. So he's from Eastern Australia, and uh, I don't know whether you guys are familiar with scribbly gums, but they're eucalypt trees that have a bark that um, looks like someone scribbled all over them, so they're quite famous from May Gibbs stories and, and, and things like that. Um, he wanted to know what made the scribbles. So, so this is a 90-something-year-old 90, 90 man who was like, I want to know what makes the scribbles. And there'd sort of been guesses, right, that the scribbles were made by various insects. But no one really knew. And so he went to the researchers at CSIRO and he was like, I want this as a project. And these researchers were like, great. I mean, we would be nervous to give this to a honours or a PhD student because we don't know when this project could end. Like, this could go on forever. We have no idea what's making these scribbles. It's basically a wild goose chase. Um, you're a 92-year-old man, go for it. <laughs> um, and he did. And he co-authored a paper when he was 96 years old and described 11 new species of moth. And so it's actually the caterpillars of these moths that, are, that were making the patterns in the scribbly gum. And so, yeah, he achieved that at 96, which is incredible. If I could get to 96 and be publishing papers, that would be amazing. But also be someone who's so still stayed so sort of insatiably curious and passionate about science. So on July 31st, 2017, which is two weeks ago, Max passed away. He was 101. Wow. So I wanted to end with a quote that he did on his 100th birthday. And this was, someone asked him, what would you say to scientists of the future? And so I was listening intently. I was like, what is Max going to say to me? <laughs> So Max says, go for it. The world is still your oyster. There's still everything to do. Australia is such an unusual part of the world because practically everything you look at is worth doing and it hasn't been done. And to a biologist, at least, it's terribly exciting. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week 
where the team will once again get lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.